Thank you all for being here. It's a great privilege to be able to uh, preach the Word of God to you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, um, the visitors, anyone who I haven't met yet, my name is Wesley. I'm on pastoral staff here. I have the privilege of leading our youth, leading um, the next generation of leaders in this church, and it is a great joy um, and privilege. Pull the mic forward. Soft. <laughs> okay, there we go. Is that better? Oh, perfect. Okay, I was wondering why people were like, eh, crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also, just indulge me for a moment. I've been married for a month. Hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. And this is, this is the first time I've preached since I've been married, so I can say, get a load of my beautiful wife in the front row. <laughs> yeah. So here's to a lifetime of making you blush in church, Dana. Um, great. So as you know, we are in the book of one Timothy, um, and I love this. I love the fact the fact that we're going through blueprints of the church. Um, I was recently exposed. Oh, yeah, I'm back on. I was recently introduced to this word ecclesiology, study form and function of the church. So I often wrestle like, what is descriptive and prescriptive in the Word of God? What what is um, a clearly defined instruction, and what is just being described as what happened in the church, and it's really fun to wrestle with those things. Um, so to dive straight in, I'm going to start off with a verse that Paul started off with last week. Um, so 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 15, Paul writes, I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul used a lot of heavy words in this, the household of God. This is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So as we dig into our text, which is going to be uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 to 7, um, it's titled Instructions for Worship. And the word instructions can be a bit iffy because I don't know if there's many of us who enjoy being told what to do. The married men here you know, I know, you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, marriage joke, sorry. Um, that's, a, that's a marriage joke. I can make those now. Um, but, but this is not us being told what to do. I think this is Paul calling us to a higher standard of living. He's saying, hey, now that you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, now that you are part of the church, the body of Christ, the, the household of God, you've joined the church, the pillar and foundation of truth. All of these big words I'm using to build up so we understand the weight of us being in the church. He says, now that you're in the church, your life needs to reflect the gospel that you believe in. So when we go through these instructions, I know it might seem heavy and might be like, man, I'm not doing anything right. Um, I don't want us to feel the weight of condemnation or anything like that. I want us to be encouraged intimacy and obedience with our Lord. So let's jump into the text. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 to 7. I'm going to read it through, and then we'll go through it line by line. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by kindness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, um, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Four. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world 
at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling the truth. And at face value, when I first read this, this through this uh, passage of scripture, I was like, wow, okay, it's about prayer. Yeah, let's pray. Um, but if you look a bit deeper, it does urge us to pray, but this text is actually about so much more. It encompasses God's redemptive purpose for the world and how we as a praying church are to fit into that. So if we go back to uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, it says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. And that's really plain and simple, that God wants everyone to be saved. And this is I don't believe this is Paul weighing in on the arguments around the doctrine of election and predestination, but rather just, this is just him opposing the false teachings that were going on in the church by saying, hey, grace and mercy and salvation are for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. So I want you to keep uh, the, this verse, these two verses in your mind and sort of adopt them as a lens through which we read the rest of the text, understanding that God has a redemptive purpose for the world and that is for everybody to be saved. Same page? Cool. Uh, so then just, just a comment on the overall structure um, of this chapter. We see that in the first two verses we are given a, an instruction. He's, he's telling us exactly what to do. Then we have the phrase, so that, halfway through um, verse two. And, and the, the fact that he says so that um, indicates that after that, there's a reason why he's telling us to do what we do. And then later in, in the chapter, Paul goes on to speak about God's redemptive purpose and how, that, how his mission is based on that. So that's gonna be our structure for today. Instruction, reason, mission. Simple enough? Okay, cool. Now we dig in. The instruction, part one. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks to them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. So first of all, we have to take note of the urgency in Paul's writing here. Not only does he urge someone, I don't think that's a word in our vocabulary. We say something is urgent when our boss calls us immediately and we're like, okay, I need to answer this call. I need to work overtime. We understand what urgent means in our busy society. So Paul is urging them, and not only is he urging them, but he is saying, first of all, above all else, you need to be praying for all people. This is a priority. And if this wasn't enough, Paul uses four different words to describe how rich and colorful our prayer lives should be when it comes to this. There are only seven words for prayer in the New Testament, and Paul used four of them here. So he's serious about this, right? So. The first type of prayer that he speaks about is petitions or requests, bringing requests directly to God. I think this is something that we are, we are um, quite familiar with, like, Lord, help us uh, get to church safely. Lord, may we get home safely. Lord, help me get an A on this test. I see you, Mikey. Um, <laughs> the, those are the type of requests that we are, we are familiar um, uh, bringing to God, right? Um, and this is a very common word found in the New Testament. Uh, the second word that he uses is a general word for prayer, literally just prayer. Um, I was gonna put the, the Greek words up there, but I can't pronounce them, so I just didn't wanna put any of us through that. Um, but this, this word is a general word for prayer used both in a private and a corporate context. But given the context of this passage, Paul is speaking about corporate prayer, about how we pray as the body of Christ together. Right? It's important to pray in private by yourself, at home, in your room, or in your lounge, wherever, but it is also important to gather and to pray. 
Um, the third word that he uses for prayer, sorry, let me, this PDF is not uh, going my way, uh, is intercession. But now this, this word intercession means praying on another's behalf. But it's really interesting because throughout the entire New Testament, this word is only found in the book of 1 Timothy. It's used here and again in chapter 4. So we need to actually take note of it. So it speaks to boldly praying on another, another's behalf. Not just praying for your own, own daily bread, but praying for your neighbor's daily bread as well. It's lifting people who are shrouded in darkness up to God and praying them back into the light, if you'll put it that way. Then the last word for prayer that he uses is thanksgiving, being able to give thanks. And that is quite straightforward. We all thank people on a daily basis. I hope we do. I hope the church has manners. Um, but it's giving thanks to God. And, and in Paul's writings, if you read throughout all his letters, he often speaks about giving thanks, about being thankful. And if you think about the persecution and the trials that the early church faced, it makes sense why they would need to have such a focus on being thankful. Because if you look back and praise God for what he's done, it gives you confidence that he'll still show up in the things to come, right? So that's why he, he emphasized on this. And, and um, it's quite cool because I think this is something that the church especially needs to get good at because um, people speculate that this is the only type of prayer that will continue into eternity. Because when we are with God and fully redeemed and our eyes are fully opened, we won't need to intercede, right? We won't need to bring any requests or petitions, but all that will remain is thanksgiving. We'll have an eternity of thanksgiving where we can fully see God's glory and how much he has done for us. So are we, are we a body of, of Christ, a body of people here who are good at giving thanks? Are we grateful? So Paul says that we are supposed to pray like this for everyone, for your noisy neighbors. And I think that's for us because our neighbors make noise at like 1 a.m. Like they start a random party and you wake up thinking someone's breaking into your house. The driver who cuts you off, I know that's near and dear to all of us. Anybody, if you can think of somebody, you should be praying for them. But Paul takes this one step further and, pray and, oh, sorry, and instructs them to do the same for those in positions of authority and power over them. He instructs them to pray for the government and for the authorities. And I already know we're stiffening up, like I am praying for this government, but we'll get to that now. When Paul wrote this, Nero was in power in Rome, and Nero was a famously cruel man. He killed his mother, he killed two of his wives, and he severely persecuted the church. It is believed that it was under his rule that Paul was beheaded. So this was a bad, bad man, as bad as they come. Yet Paul himself was urging the church to pray for him to pray for the man who was responsible for the deaths of so many Christians. That's crazy. Paul wasn't just saying that, we should, that they should pray for the leadership, but to plead and wrestle with God in prayer for them. I know some of us will have like a friend or a family member who's going, something, going through something and will fast and will pray and we will cry out to God, but Paul is saying you need to do the same thing for those in authority above you. You need to thank God for them. Talk about an upside-down kingdom, right? <laughs> the church is very quiet. Um, so we as the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth, are called to pray for all people, including those in power and those whose political ideologies differ 
from our own. Corruption and greed and racial tension do not disqualify anybody from the grace and love of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. It's a tough pill to swallow living in South Africa. I know, I live here too. The fact that we are able to gather and worship together depends on the lawmakers in our country. So we ought to pray for them and be thankful for them and pray that we maintain a level of favor that allows us to continue to do this. We don't have to smuggle Bibles around, right? But I, I just want to, to take it even deeper than that and not say that it's just so that we can gather together, but um, there we go. The instruction to pray for everyone is rooted in God's desire for everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. That is why we pray for everyone. That is why we pray for even the people we don't agree with, even the people who steal from us, even the people who do things we disagree with. Sorry, I don't want to get political. Um, that is why we do it. The instruction to pray for everyone is rooted in God's desire for everyone to be saved. So the question, church, is how is your prayer life doing? How is your prayer life? We had youth on Friday nights and we spoke about prayer. Jess posed this question and she said, how is your prayer life? Is it dry like a desert? Is it like a vending machine where you put in a prayer and then you think you get a blessing out of it? You know, you choose if and when. I forgot the other pictures that she used. I should have written them down. But how is your prayer life? Is it a little genie in the bottle? Is, is it something, um, is it reflected in these four words? Do you enjoy praying? Is it just a checklist? Sorry. These four words. Do you actually enjoy praying? Is, is it just a checklist that you feel like you have to do? It's a chore. When was the last time that you woke up a bit earlier or put your phone away a bit earlier um, or turned off the TV so you could spend more time in prayer? When was the last time you prayed for this country? I'm sure we all remember the last time we complained about it. It seems like there's literally something to complain about around every corner. And I mean literally because the robots are out on every corner. So there's something to complain about around every corner. But that means that there is something to pray about around every corner. How much time have you spent praying for the leaders of this country? This morning we thank God for our political parties and it felt like the weirdest thing ever. But it's what we're instructed to do. And what about corporate prayer? Do you believe that prayer is something that only happens behind closed doors when you're alone? Well, if we look at scripture, that's clearly not... Um, the mandate that we've been given. And as a church, do we value um, spending time praying together? Is it something that we value? Because we had a prayer meeting this morning and there were like only seven people. <laughs> I wasn't counting. <laughs> um, but, I, but I just imagine, because we have prayer meetings on a Sunday morning at 8.15, and I wonder why not many people come. Do we have a culture where we value prayer? And my hopes is that that lounge that we pray in will become too small of a venue for our prayer. What if we had to move our prayer into the auditorium? What would our church look like, right? How would things be different? So part two, the reason. Oh, I was supposed to put these questions up. Okay, list of things I'm not good at, PowerPoints. Okay. Um, part two, the instruction, right? So why are we praying for all people? It's so that we can live peaceful lives, peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understands the truth. This feels like a bit of a cheat code because Paul is saying, this is a life that pleases God. 
This is a life that pleases God. These four qualities in your life, that pleases God. It's a cheat code, right? He's literally giving us the blueprints on how to live a life that pleases God. So this is important, right? Because Paul is speaking now about our outward lives that people can observe. And the reason why this is important is because the world is not just listening to our testimony of Jesus, but they are watching it too. You and I as new creations, pun intended, are living proof of the gospel. The first two words that Paul uses here are adjectives, right? And they refer to the volume of your life. What is the noise that your life is making? The second two words that he uses, uh, godliness and dignity, are nouns, and they refer to the tone or the quality of your life. This is going to make a lot of sense when I go through them. So the first word that he uses here about a life that pleases God, a life that commends the gospel, is peace. Now, peace is an internal quality. You either have peace behind closed doors or you don't. You can't fake it. You either have peace in your heart or you don't. You can't fake it. And the opposite of of a peaceful life is a life that is filled with drama. Every week there is something new to talk about. A life that is filled with controversy, pot stirring and turmoil. A life that is filled with gossip. And yes, we're saying gossip because Paul wrote about gossip quite a bit if you read his letters. And I think in the church today, we also struggle with gossip. These are things that show that you actually aren't leading a peaceful life. And if this is what you're putting out to the world, do you know what it does? It compromises your witness of Christ. Because how many people turn away from the church because of Christians? Because they're offended by Christians, not offended by Christ. Cool. Second word that he uses is quiet. Now, this is an external quality. It's an observable quality. It's about what you put out to the world, right? Notice that it's quiet, it's not silent. doesn't mean that you're silent, it just means that you're not making noise. Nobody likes someone who makes noise. Um, It means that you're not hooting or swearing at people in traffic, but rather praying for them. A few weeks ago, I was going to pick up Dana from Christine's Kitchen Tea, and I was this close to getting T-boned by a taxi at a four-way stop. Um, And I was so upset, I was like, I I, I drove out of that and I was like, I need two things. I need a Hilux or I need a gun. (laughs) Because in both of those, none would mess with me, right? Um, And then then God was like, really? Um, Why don't you pray for him? And then I was like, Lord, I hope he gets into an accident. (laughs) And then then, um, God put a bit more bass in his voice and he says, why don't you pray for him? And I said, okay, Lord, I hope he gets home safely. And I think there's this, there's this thing that we have that we want people to know that if they mess with us, they're going to get messed with back. That if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. There is this ugly pride that can well up within us, this eye for an eye mentality. But, but the thing is that if someone wrongs me, I don't want them to expect being wronged back. If someone wrongs me, they need to know that the response is just going to be grace. And it's not because it's what they deserve. It's because that is what the gospel urges and empowers us to do. That is what it means to live a quiet life. Godliness. This is an internal quality. It speaks to our reverence for God. It speaks to the things that we consume internally and how we stew on them. We let that marinate inside of us. It speaks to the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's easy to know if you are growing in these things. 
It's a very easy checklist to know if this is something, if these are fruit that you are growing in or if you're not. And it's important that we are growing in these fruits because dignity is about external perception. And what stews on the inside of us and comes out affects the external perception that people have of us, right? It's about, developing, it's about people developing a sense of respect when they see your life. I respect the way he speaks to others. I can say, I respect the way Paul raises his kids. I respect the way Dan serves Christine. Things like that. It's, about, it's not about putting up a facade. It's about, giving, it's about living in such a way that you give someone no reason to think poorly of Jesus. That's what it means to live with dignity, that our actual witness is not something that detracts from the gospel, but points to it. So if you bring all of these together, you're left with one simple question. What type of sound does your life make in front of a watching world? Um, I know this type of question might bring out a bad taste in your mouth because there's this perception that people in church are fake, that we put on our Sunday best and when we walk past someone, it's like, how's it going? No, I'm good, I'm good, I'm great. Don't worry about me, like, I'm good, life is good, everything at home is good. And, and that's, that's this perception that we have. But that's not what I'm asking you to do and it is certainly not the point of this text. The reality is, that your life will do one of two things. It'll either commend God's desire to save the world, or it won't. It will either commend God's desire to save the world, or it won't. There isn't any middle ground. You can't sit on the fence where this is concerned. And as the church, it is our responsibility to pray for everyone so that we are able to live with peace and quiet and godliness and dignity that is non-existent in a broken world. I was chatting to Paul the other day and he was expressing how he wishes in South Africa we could live in peace and quiet. But that just doesn't seem possible right now. Bless you. To be able to live in peace and quiet. But that's why we need to pray so that our lives are, are marked by these qualities that can be a beacon that points people to Jesus. Part three, the mission. Okay, so this is speaking about God's redemptive purpose. It says, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth? For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. So at the end of verse four, Paul speaks about the truth. What is the truth? But well, before I get to that, he does this for two reasons mainly. Firstly, he, he does this because there are false teachings in the church, and again, he has to hammer home what the truth is. The second is because there was, he lived in a, well, not he lived, what well, he did, but he was writing to a church that existed in a polytheistic context, which means there were many gods, there were many idols, and he had to hammer home the fact that there is only one God, right? 
Um, and, and we're not actually much different from that time. Uh, if we look around now, there are obviously like a plethora of different religions. There's new ageism, there's ancestral worship in our country, in Africa. Um, there's a lot of spiritual forces that people cling to and worship uh, instead of God. And even, we, we just went through this series on biblical sexuality where what pops up is that the world we live in today has propped up the idea that subjective truth can also be a God. That it can be an altar that people worship at and, and give their lives to. But Paul says from verse five that for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Basically, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And this was the truth that Paul built his life and his mission on. This is the truth of the gospel message that allowed him to instruct the church to pray for those who were actually trying to tear the church down. This is that radical truth that allowed him to be a radical man. So today, church, the question is, are we building our lives on this truth? Why is it that we come to church on a Sunday morning? Why is it that we act the way we act at work? Do we see our workspaces as mission fields where we can proclaim this truth that there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus? The soccer teams that you play for, what do we see them as? Is this a truth that we are building our lives upon? I'm going to let that linger a little bit. But I have to urge you to build your life on this truth. The truth that there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. Let that invigorate your prayer life. Let that motivate your actions. Build your life on the truth of this gospel. And I know it's, it's not a very practical instruction. Build your life on this. What do you mean build my life? How do I do that? There's no bricks here. Um, <laughs> What does it mean? But we, we can unpack this as we go along and over the next few weeks and years, as, and that's what discipleship is. That's what spiritual formation is, is that you keep learning how to be more like Jesus. You keep learning how to spend more time with Jesus. But I can tell you where we start today. We start by praying for all people. We start by asking God to help them. We start by interceding on their behalf and giving thanks to them. We pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that uh, we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. That's how we start today. The sermon, I didn't put a title up, but I, but I titled it A Praying Church. And it feels a bit redundant if you really think about it, like a praying church. It's like saying chai tea. Chai means tea, so you're saying tea tea. It's, 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 it seems a bit redundant because a church should be praying. A church is supposed to be praying. Um, so today, we've got a nice chunk of time. That's really good. We're, not gonna, we're gonna end off the sermon uh, or the service a bit differently today. We are not going to sing songs or do anything like that. Don't worry, we're still gonna have scones and tea. But today, <laughs> we are going to end off by praying. 
by having a church-wide prayer meeting. Um, so I'm going to get into the, the nitty-gritties of it just now. Um, okay, I'll get into the nitty-gritties right away. Um, so right where you are, not, don't do it right now, you can sit or you can stand, but form a group of people around you. If you aren't comfortable praying in a group, if you aren't comfortable praying out loud, that's totally fine. You can just sit down and pray quietly where you are. That's fine. But those of you who are comfortable, those of you who are feeling stirred and encouraged, then I encourage you to turn to the people around you and pray together as a group. I want us to actually pray the way that we've been instructed to. Because I feel like um, sometimes we come here, we hear a message and we leave and we don't really apply it. So now I'm actually helping you. I'm giving you space to apply it. It's like I'm giving you extra study time before an exam, you know? So that's what we're going to do. So before you get into your little groups, I'm going to give you a few prayer points based on the scripture uh, that we've read. So these are the prayer points. So the first prayer points I'm giving you is a prayer of thanksgiving. There's a word there, dayenu. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. It's a Jewish song that is sung at Passover. And translated to English roughly, it means it would have been enough. So it's a, it's, it's a framework that we are able to, um, that helps us express our gratitude. It's saying, Lord, thank you that we could gather here. It would have been enough, but you gave us heaters. Lord, thank you that, that I could sit today and have, that I had food at work, that I could have lunch at work, but you gave me a coworker to sit across from. Uh, Lord, thank you that I had coffee today. It would have been enough, but there's milk in the fridge. It's a way of simplifying things down and being grateful. Saying, Lord, it would have been enough. It would have been enough, but you went the extra mile. Prayers of thanksgiving, that's our first prayer point. The second prayer point is interceding for the lost. How many of you here know someone in your life who doesn't know God, who doesn't believe in Jesus? Put your hands up. Most of us, right? If your hand wasn't up, you need to meet new people. Uh, you really do. You really do. It's not a joke. Um, so we know people who we can pray for. We know people who we need to intercede for. And, and this is what God commands us to do. It's to wrestle, wrestle and pray and throw ourselves in the gap for them to trust for their Salvation. And now the last point. You're going to have to unclench your jaws and pray for the government. Listen, I've lost shocks to potholes, so it is what it is. Pray for the government. Pray that we can continue to live quiet and peaceful lives. Pray that we can continue to meet. Pray that we can continue to freely share the gospel. And then pray that we would be given leaders of integrity. One thing I didn't put up there, I want us to also thank God for our government, which seems very counterintuitive. And, and to tie this all together, I believe Paul tells us to pray for all of these things because prayer changes our hearts. Prayer changed my heart towards the taxi driver who I wanted to kill. All of a sudden, I'm praying for his salvation. I'm like, I'm like Lord, what is, what is the brokenness here? Like, Jesus, just move into those places and, and speak life to him. That's what changes our hearts. And I think it's because Paul knows that when we pray for the world, we get God's heart for everyone 
to be saved. And I hope that's the biggest takeaway from today. Today. 